Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, co-editor of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app. This week on Babbage, we dive into a much-needed new theory on why humans are so intelligent, a question which has puzzled scientists because it's definitely not obvious how being able to solve a Rubik's Cube has helped us survive. The theory starts at the beginning, with infants. Rescue. It always comes. Mother or daddy is always there to save you. Even though they aren't quite such slaves as you once thought, They'll always bring you something that tastes nice to help you forget your troubles. Here's lead author Celeste Kidd on the new theory. The longer that the infant needs to depend on the parent, the more intelligent the primate. Before returning to intelligent minds, we turn to a machine that allows designers' dreams to come true by breaking with past production limitations. For that, though, we're going to have to get our hands dirty on the shop floor, and luckily we've got Paul Markilli, our innovation editor here, to explain. Now, Paul, before we talk about the future, what's limited designers in the past? Well, you've had to build things for manufacture. So if you design a product, you've had to put flanges on it, holes to bolt things together, ways to weld it, weld it up, all sorts of things like that. So you'd often get with brand new cars, for instance, you see these beautiful concept cars at car shows, but they never build them. And the reason they never build them is they're too expensive and too complicated. So they then go to the engineers and say, can we build this? And they say, nope, uh, you need to change this, change that. And so they end up looking rather boxy and boring. So designing for traditional manufacture has produced certain shapes and certain styles that you can't really get away from, or at least not very efficiently. With new technologies, particularly computer-aided design and additive manufacturing, those constraints are beginning to disappear. And part of that change is this gizmo called Reform? Reform, yes. I went up to uh, the University of Lancaster to see this, where this machine has been developed. Now, what this is, is a bit of a hybrid. It's a box. And inside that box, it's partly a traditional manufacturing machine. It cuts things out with a, a spinning milling blade. But it's also a 3D printer. It can print things as well. And it contains a scanner. So what you can do there is use your software to uh, mill something or 3D print something. But you could also take that something out, say, if it was a cup, and say, yeah, it looks nice, but I'd like to add another handle to it. So you get a bit of clay, and you make another handle, and you stick it on, and you put it back into the machine. Well, the scanner looks at it and says, aha, he's put a new handle on there. It then updates the digital version in the computer, and then it can print another one. So it's a kind of do-anything, very usable way of using a combination of both digital technology and old-fashioned getting your hands dirty, taking a saw or a, a drill to something and changing the shape. Well, it sounds as if you can make absolutely 
absolutely anything with this with this gizmo. I mean, surely there are some limitations somehow. You're limited, of course, by the size of the box. But of course, you can take this technology out of the box. You can put the, put it on the ends of robot arms. You're limited by the sorts of materials you can you you can use. But then, 3D printers are now coming in all sorts of different materials. So you put in a different cartridge, so to speak, as you would in a different coloured ink. But the limitations are steadily going away. I mean, this probably is the closest you've got to a Star Trek replicator, the machine you could walk up to and say, tea, Earl Grey, hot, and it would make you both the cup and the tea. They can't, I don't think they can quite do the tea yet, but they can definitely do the cup. I've seen also this picture of the motorbike. Tell me about this. Well, the motorbike is made by a company called AP Works, which is a subsidiary of Airbus, a European uh, manufacturer. And it uses a special material that Airbus have developed, a special alloy for additive manufacturing. And they have printed what they claim to be the world's first 3D printed motorcycle. Um, it's a very interesting thing. It's electrically powered. Not particularly going to give the bikers much of a thrill, but um, you know it, what's really interesting is it's amazingly lightweight because the frame itself has a very organic, natural-looking structure. And that is a product of the software that's now used to design things because it can optimize the shape according to the material you're using and often that shape is optimized just as mother nature would optimize things because nature because it's been at this for millions of years so it has a very organic or origami looking structure but it's a very lightweight motorcycle electrically powered at 50,000 euros a little bit expensive though Mother Nature or not, I have to admit, this this motorbike design looks a bit like Swiss cheese. Um, after the show, we'll be posting a picture of it on Twitter so you can see for yourself. Uh, but first, Paul, how is reform a game changer for the commercial industry? Well, it's not yet a commercial product. It's still in the process of being development. But what you could see where this goes, especially if it can start to, as they may think, print electronic circuits into things as well, that you could design products without any particular knowledge of sophisticated CAD-CAM systems or engineering terms. You could just get hold of something and shape it as you would a piece of modeling clay and pop it inside. And and so it becomes very democratized manufacturing skill there that um, you could do things with. You could also just take an object and put it in the machine machine and it looks at it scans it and then builds you a complete replica which is hence why it's close to being a replicator well it's a whole world of things paul i have to ask if you could have anything made for you by one of these machines what would you make first easy answer it would need to print in red it would need to be fairly large and it would look like a ferrari (laughs) thanks for that paul that's a pleasure And to all our listeners, don't forget, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can reach us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio or me at Jason Palmer. On last week's show, we discussed a new report that leaves no doubt about the consequences of overusing antibiotics. Hugh Lee, commenting on our Facebook page, said, Being a pharmacist, I see it firsthand. Most people going to the doctor want the quick fix, and doctors are so rushed now, they just give you antibiotics to get rid of you. I wish they made a placebo pill with a fancy name that doctors could prescribe to fool the masses. Adam Simpson considered the issue of overprescribing. He said, My grandfather frequently gets antibiotics called in without even having a doctor examine him. He doesn't even have signs of a bacterial infection. Certainly something that's a big problem that seems to only be getting bigger. Thanks for those comments, and keep them coming. And as promised, after this show, we'll be posting a picture on Twitter of the world's first 3D-printed motorbike. Let us know your thoughts. 
Next up, babies are helpless creatures. But this feature may have importance for evolution. If you're helpless, then you need someone smart to look after you. At least, that's the logic behind the newest theory on why humans are the most intelligent animals in the kingdom. Here's lead author of the study, Celeste Kidd. I think my favorite aspect of this new theory is that it can potentially explain why um, humans are so different and so unique when compared to um, other animal species. So it's like we're not just a little bit uh, more intelligent than, than other animals. We're capable of great intellectual feats like science itself. And with me today is Tim Cross, our science correspondent. Tim, you're writing about this for this week's issue. Tell me about the new theory. So human intelligence is a bit of a puzzle in evolution, um, mainly because we seem to have so much of it. So you might not think that looking around the world, but we really, really do. Um, much more than we might plausibly need because things like, I don't know, being able to do algebra or solve Pythagoras' theorem or whatever, it's been pretty useful in the last few hundred years. But if you're a band of roving hunter-gatherers on the East African savannah, it's not massively obvious that you need a brain with the ability to do to do calculus. And evolution you know, generally is fairly stingy, and it'll give you what you need and no more. So the new theory basically looks at another odd quirk of humans in evolutionary terms, which is that our babies are really kind of helpless. You know, you compare a human baby, which lies on its back and gurgles for nine months, with something like a, a, a foal or a baby giraffe or something that can stand up you know, within a few minutes of being born. And the new idea basically is that helpless babies need intelligent parents to look after them. Intelligent parents requires intelligent babies, and intelligent babies require that the babies be helpless. So you end up with this sort of self-sustaining feedback loop where the more helpless the babies get, the smarter the parents have to be. The smarter the parents have to be, the more helpless the babies have to be. So hang on, intelligent babies equals helpless babies. Why is that? It sounds a bit contradictory, I suppose, when you put it like that. But the idea is because humans, like most mammals, have their young develop internally, that means they have to give birth to them. And that sort of imposes physical limits on, you know, how big the babies can be when it's time for them to come out. And the way we think that's being solved is that human babies are born much earlier in their gestation than they otherwise would be. So it makes a lot of sense then. Completely useless babies require then smart parents to look after them. Well, here again, it all sounds very good in theory, but how do you test such a thing? Well, this is one of the big problems with studying human evolution. I mean, ultimately, you can't. You can't test it directly unless someone invents a time machine because all this stuff has happened over tens of thousands of years and most of the evidence is gone. But what you can do and what they did do are two things. So the first was to build a sort of mathematical model of this process, run it for a few thousand simulated generations and see what happens. Um, and the results from the model suggest that this is something plausible, this could happen. The second thing is to go out and look in the real world. And you can't look at humans because we don't have enough data from history. But what you can do is look at our close cousins. So what the researchers did was they looked at intelligence tests that had been applied to lots of other primate species. So 23 of them in all, everything from chimps and gorillas to like tiny little Madagascan lemurs and compared how they did on those standardized intelligence tests with how long it takes them to wean their young, which was the sort of most convenient, measurable thing they could find to stand in for helplessness. And they found that weaning time seemed to explain about three quarters of the variation in intelligence. So it's not a slam dunk, it's not a certainty, but it's, it's a pretty striking set of findings. So we've got a decent mathematical model, we've got some fairly compelling experimental evidence, I suppose, or as good as we can hope for in the case. But it's it's worth comparing, I guess, with what we already know. So I, I guess I'll ask you what you think of that. But before I do, uh, let's hear again from Celeste Kidd about the competing theories. We think that this theory is not in conflict, but rather a complement to um, other theories of why human intelligence developed and other factors that may have been influential. Um, some other things that people 
have suggested, like living in social groups or eating meat, are probably also important pieces of the puzzle. So what do you make of that then, Tim? There's one theory that I quite like that she didn't mention, which is that it's the product of sexual selection. So in, under that theory, having a big brain is a bit like a peacock having a big impressive tail. It's big and it's expensive to own. I mean, the brain takes up about a quarter of your energy. And the very hassle of owning it proves how fit you are in an evolutionary sense. And you know, sexual selection is, is a good potential fit because it tends to produce these sort of you know, weird, massively overdeveloped things like peacock's tails, like huge antlers on male stags, like bright coloration on male birds. And so having a sort of oddly enormous brain kind of fits with that, perhaps. I mean, like Celeste says, we, we have a lot of theories. We don't know that it's any particular one of them. It may be several of them. And I mean, one thing to point out with this latest theory is that once you've got the feedback loop established, you can see how it would work, how it would you know, work to sort of drive up intelligence massively. But that leaves the question of what got the feedback loop started in the first place. So it may be that one of these other factors or a mix of all these other factors um, was needed before the feedback loop could even take off. Well, a whole packet of ideas, and I guess it's important to remember that it could be sort of any mix of these things. And until the, the time machine gets invented, we won't know. But for the moment, I guess we'll just count ourselves lucky we've got big brains rather than big shiny tails. Thanks for that, Tim. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist, where you can find Tim and Paul's articles, or visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.